Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This week, we have uh, Brad Crone with us. Brad, of course, has been a frequent guest on our program and all sorts of things to talk to Brad about. Brad, I can't wait to get into the topics because there was uh, some very big news on Friday. And uh, so let's just leave with that and tell us what happened on Friday. Well, Don, the uh, Republican majority state Supreme Court overturned a Democratic court ruling from last year that's going to allow the General Assembly to redraw legislative and congressional districts along partisan lines. The high court also reinstated the voter, the state's voter ID law that had been stricken by the Democratic majority court two years ago. So the immediate impact on the voter ID law is that there are two other cases pending in federal court. So we won't see the immediate implementation of voter ID laws, but I do believe you will see implementation going into the 2024, if not the primary in March. For sure, I think the the voter ID will probably be implemented for the November 2024 presidential election. At the uh, redistricting issue, the impact of that, Don, is going to be substantial because it, it could very easily make the Democratic Party in the state of North Carolina a long-term minority party at the legislative level and probably will allow the Republicans to redraw congressional districts that will pick up anywhere from from two to three seats. Right now in North Carolina, our con- congressional districts are split seven to seven. I believe with the new congressional map that is focused on uh, gerrymandered partisanship, you could see a map that has uh, nine Republicans and five Democrats. So clearly it's going to have an impact. The Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court really laid out the argument that the State Supreme Court majority justices adopted. And Justice Newby said that the state's judiciary doesn't have the power to weigh in on partisan gerrymandering, and that even if it did have that power, the issue relies too much on the eye of the beholder when it comes to legislative and congressional districts. Here's a real interesting quote that was just issued by the Supreme Court Friday afternoon. Our Constitution expressly assigns redistricting authority to the General Assembly, subject to the explicit limit in the text. Justice Newby said those constitutional limitations do not address partisan gerrymandering. It is not the authority within the court to amend the Constitution to create such limitations on a responsibility that is textually assigned to another branch of state government. So clearly, the Republicans moved back to a conservative position supporting the state's constitution, but also supporting the argument laid out by the President Pro Tem and the Speaker of the House. This is a very big story, and it's going to have wide-ranging implications on our election cycle, not uh, immediately. You know, the General Assembly will have to accept this ruling, and then the leadership will probably have to decide what type schedule. But I fully anticipate you'll see new legislative and congressional districts for the 2024 general election. So now, how does this play with those actions that are in federal court? Uh, 
the Supreme Court has remanded back most of the redistricting cases back to the state Supreme Court level. So this will be the court of last resort for those cases. And that's why it gives the green light to the Republican majority in the legislature to redraw these districts. Well, it, you know, that, it's so interesting because being a purple state is such an interesting uh problem uh, for all politicians of both parties to decide how to legislate and how to set up districts and so forth, because, you know, uh, in a statewide election, it's still pretty close to 50-50. But when you start trying uh, to set out districts, it's it's almost impossible to uh, set them out to any kind of a standard that, uh, uh, that Everybody equals can out to that. Yeah. All right. That really is, and it's a big quandary. Uh, the the listen the Democrats were doing gerrymandering all the way through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and the Republicans have just been able to elevate that game uh, to the power go the victors. So that means this, Don, an election for the state house and state senate is extremely important in the state of North Carolina. The victories have outcomes and they have consequences. And the Republicans who maintain control of the General Assembly have been given a green light by the Republican Supreme Court that they can draw the legislative and congressional districts to their liking. And if the Democrats want to change it, well, guess what? You got to win elections. You got to win elections at the legislative level, and you got to win elections at the statewide level for the state Supreme Court. That's just all there is to it. Well, uh, you know, I think it's fair to, of course, point out to our listeners that uh, this is coming from a person who works basically representing Democratic uh, candidates. So uh, that's uh, advice that they should heed. Uh, that's uh, Brad is basically a uh, a recovering uh, Democrat. Yeah, and uh, so uh, the Democrats need to to listen to you, Brad. <laughs> I'm a Jim Hunt Democrat. Um, and there are not many of us left anymore. So um, I'm registered actually now unaffiliated. But, you know, the Democrats, if you want to bellyache about this ruling, start winning elections. You know, win the Supreme Court, win the state yeah. legislature. It's not that hard. I know you don't like the rulings, but to the power goes the victors or to the victors go the power. Council of State positions and the governor and lieutenant governor's race, of course, are statewide. So uh, that will be more along the lines of being a 50-50 purple state, right? Correct. Absolutely. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Well, you know, one of the things we want to talk about a little bit later on is the fact that our state treasurer, Dale Falwell, has announced his can candidacy for governor. So we know that that position will be up and we'll talk about uh, maybe other candidates that might be running. Now, I want to turn my attention to something called crossover at the General Assembly. Tell tell us what crossover is. Well, crossover is the legislative deadline that determines if a bill will be eligible for consideration during the two-year session. A bill that passes either the state Senate or the state House prior to crossover will remain a viable bill, even if it's not brought up on either floor during the long session, they can save it and bring it up during the short session. So it remains an active, uh, viable bill. So that the, the deadline for that is next Friday. It's going to be a huge crush uh, next Thursday. Uh, 
So there's a, a just a large number of bills going through each chamber at this time trying to, to make crossover. So the legislature has really been hectic the last week and will be even more hectic next week. So what are some of the bills that are affected by this crossover that may be, uh, I guess, uh, put off till the next session? Well, I think one of the, uh, the, the big pushes, the big pieces of legislation coming out of the legislature this week that will probably go to one of the chambers before they uh, recess this session was the Blue Cross Blue Shield reform bill that moved out of the state house, uh, yes, Thursday, 86 to 26. And it's basically a, a reform bill that allows uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield to modernize. And it will allow them to, to remain a nonprofit company here in the state of North Carolina. And it will basically protect 6,000 jobs. Now, the commissioner of insurance, uh, Republican Mike Causey, has voiced some concern about regulatory oversight. The committee substitute bill addressed a lot of those concerns that the commissioner had, in particular on uh, adding some transparency and, and accountability reporting back, and then also making sure that, that when Blue Cross sets up their new corporate holding company that will be the mothership, that there will be some requirements that if Blue Cross Blue Shield, which will be a subsidiary, and if they run into any type of liquidity issues, then the mothership can provide money back to Blue Cross Blue Shield. The commissioner's main points have been that this is premium dollars paid by policyholders from small business owners and individuals and state employees and retirees, and that he really wants to be uh, a consumer advocate when it comes to how the $4.6 billion that's held in reserve right now is being allocated. So that bill will move over to the Senate. Uh, I think there's general widespread bipartisan support in the state Senate for the legislation. There may be some tweaking to that. We'll see how that develops. That's going to be a story to watch over the next few weeks. Then there was a dust up, Don, between the bankers and the, the credit unions over definitions of available customers. That was House Bill 410. Julia Howard, a longtime legislator, a pro at moving legislation and working legislation, really worked to try and bring both sides of that together. That passed out of the state house last week. Then another really interesting bill was the prescription benefit management legislation that was managed by Wayne Sasser, who's a state lawmaker from Montgomery and Stanley counties. He's a registered pharmacist and owns a, a local mom and pop pharmacy. And basically, he got a legislation, a bill passed out of the state house. It was unanimous. It was 114 to nothing that rewrites the state's requirements for prescription benefit managers doing business in the state of North Carolina. And basically, it prohibits the PBMs from uh, penalizing local owned uh, smaller independent pharmacies that they have to treat them the same way they treat Walgreens or they treat CVS. So it really does level the playing field for the mom and pop local independent uh, pharmacies. That bill will be moving over to the um, state Senate as well. There was another bill. Now, uh, by the way, you, you pointed out that that bill was passed 
bipartisan uh, unanimously. So absolutely, one hundred and fourteen yeah. to nothing, bipartisan vote. Yeah. And it's rather unusual that you see unanimous uh, legislation like that move through. There was a bill regarding legal tender. Uh, more and more retail businesses are moving over to digital, electronic, debit, and credit card transactions and not willing to accept cash. So House Bill 690, uh, proposed by Monroe legislator Mark Brody, is uh, defining legal tender and uh, also making sure that the state agencies in North Carolina do not accept cryptocurrency as a form of payment, that it's got to be legal tender currency or electronic accepted uh, debit and credit card. So those were some of the bills that we were following. There are many, many more uh, that we will be tracking throughout the next week, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it later in the show. Well, it's certainly a busy week, and uh, of course, uh, you know, a crossover is sort of a internal term, but it, it is something the public needs to be aware of and kind of understand. And I appreciate you bringing that to everyone's attention. Our guest is Brad Crone. Uh, he's with Campaign Connections, and uh, he has uh, been a guest on our program numerous times. We're going to move forward in the next session to some other things that are being considered by the legislature, and we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. Steven. Who said that? Me. Down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Play in puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers, segment number two. Brad Crone is our guest. He is the uh, president and uh, chief honcho of Campaign Connections, a uh, advocacy, I mean, a organization that deals with uh, politicians and advocacy groups and gives them advice on how to move forward with their projects. Uh, one of the things, of course, the General Assembly is uh, looking at is scrapping tenure for college professors. Tenure, of course, has long been a controversial subject. Um, it, uh, of course, has a long history of being a part of academia. Uh, but more and more professors, in many cases, are choosing not to seek tenure. So it's not quite as relevant as it was at one point in time. 
But still, there are a number of professors and uh, teachers who seek tenure. Uh, but the Republican legislators want to scrap the state system for providing tenure. So what, what's going on there? And explain the pros and cons of that, if you would, uh, Brad. Well, uh, Don, I think it's a trend going on in higher education all across uh, the country. And, and like you said, more and more uh, professors who are working in the university system aren't necessarily, they're looking more for contracts rather than uh, a tenured situation. The Generally speaking, tenure provides the experienced professor with academic and financial protections, but it's not afforded to a professor or instructor who's on contract. So it enables the, the tenured professor to work without fear of being fired, except under extreme circumstances. It, you know, it takes a stick of dynamite to get them out. Um, there have been some instances here in North Carolina where you've had professors and it's taken great lengths to get them uh, who have acted inappropriately to get them off the payroll uh, and out of their tenured professorships. So House Bill 715 is a Republican-sponsored bill called Higher Education and Modernization and Affordability Act, and it will replace the University of North Carolina's systems when it deals with tenure, offering a contract program rather than lifelong tenure. Under the bill, colleges and universities in the UNC system would not only offer contracts lasting up to four years, but contracted professors could be fired, suspended, or demoted due to incompetence, due to neglect of duty, uh, misconduct, uh, unsatisfactory performance levels from uh, supervisors, uh, institutional financial um, corruption, and uh, any type of malfeasance when it comes to teaching in the classroom or research and, and public service programs. So there's been an uproar over that within some of the professor tenure positions at universities across the state. But I, I really believe that the legislature sending a message to the professors, a clear and simple message is that you work for the people of North Carolina. We represent the people of North Carolina and we're, we want to have more accountability. We want to have more connectivity, uh, more direct oversight. And the legislature is using this legislation as a means of doing that. So it may not be pleasant for some of the long-term professors who don't necessarily want to have um, any type of oversight or any type of relationship with their employer. So it's really going to be interesting to watch. Uh, I think that it's a positive step for the legislature. And again, I go back to what I said in the first segment. If you don't necessarily like these actions, then find you a candidate and get them elected and send them to the legislature. Otherwise, realize that a middle to conservative uh, right-leaning uh, state legislature is writing the budget and writing the policies, and that is the reality that we're living in. So again, the elections have consequences. The Republicans are exercising their dutiful rights and saying, we're going to have some oversight and accountability 
when it comes to the people who are teaching in our classrooms at the state university level. And of course, as you said, this is not a unique problem to the state of North Carolina. How have some of the other states addressed this problem, uh, to your knowledge, Brad? I think most of the other states, there are a lot of southern states, there are a lot of uh, western and plain states that have addressed this, and it has been a positive uh, influence. It has brought in new uh, energy in many of the institutions, and it has re-energized uh, the staffs. And I can tell you, in looking at our major flagship universities at Carolina, at State, at UNC Charlotte, I think it's well needed at this point in time. The The tenure brings on uh, sort of a mossback process where they get in the job, they don't think anybody can touch them, and they'll do what they darn well please. And that doesn't necessarily reflect what the university needs, what the students need, and what the people of North Carolina need. So I think it's real progress on how we uh, hire and pay uh, professors. What? How does this address those who already have tenure? That I have not really determined. I would assume there would be a grandfather clause for those who already have tenure or a uh, de-escalation process that would uh, provide a number of years scale to go back to a contract situation. Interesting. Well, that will be something interesting. And of course, it doesn't have the full uh, power of the entire faculty anymore as it did maybe 20 years ago, where uh, this was something that the faculty of all these schools were sort of united on. I don't believe that exists anymore. Is Am I reading that correctly? No, you're absolutely right. And Don, this bill actually, I think the, the positive side of this bill is that it gives the administrators more flexibility in uh, having a very responsive faculty to the needs of their students and the programs that they're providing instruction on. Interesting. Uh, legislature also is looking for uh, having a little bit more uh, insight over the state community college system. Uh, how does, uh, what, uh, I think that's House Bill 715? That is correct. And and that will allow the, the state Senate to have confirmation hearings on the candidate who is recommended to be the state system president. Right now, the Board of Trustees for the community college system uh, votes, goes through the uh, search and hiring process for the president of the state community college system. We just appointed a new president. He took office this week. And the state Senate saying, listen, we want to have confirmation hearings on that so that we can fully vet that the person who is being recommended will be a good fit for the people of North Carolina, for the community colleges and the students that they serve. I think it will pass, and and I, I think it is a good check and balance system, good piece of legislation that will be a benefit to the state. Well, the state community colleges have more autonomy than the uh, members of the uh, uh, UNC higher education system, the 16 or so campuses of this of the higher education system is more controlled by the uh, Board of Governors. The, the community colleges already have more autonomy. Will that be affected? No, it really won't be affected. And your local uh, boards uh, at the community college level 
uh, in, at the local county level will not be affected by this either. So it's just purely for the president and the president of the community college system is going to be responsible for setting the tone and the tenor for the future of our community college system. Um, the new president who has been brought in just started to getting work, getting to work. And I'm sure uh, following his work progress is going to be uh, something up for discussion as we move forward into the future. Let's move over to House Bill uh, or Senate Bill 321, which has to do with a, a program that Dale Falwell is pushing. Right. State uh, Treasurer Dale Falwell had a really good week this week. The uh, Medical Debt Deweaponization Act cleared its first major legislative hurdle uh, last week, getting an endorsement from the State Health Care Committee. Uh, Del Fowell has been on a campaign across the state saying there needs to be more transparency and more accountability in health care billing, whether it's coming from the provider community or whether it's a hospital community. So it's been a pro-family, anti-poverty, pro-consumer piece of legislation that uh, is really sticking up for healthcare consumers in the state of North Carolina. It's going to give them uh, more rights when a bill is presented that they have questions on, and uh, the bill will put some control on the collection practices um, that have been implemented by hospitals and physicians and providers. So it, it really does give a little bit more power for the consumer and, uh, you know, the, the state treasurer deserves full credit for advocating that position and being willing to take on the healthcare delivery system infrastructure in the state. Uh, well, you know, I think all the consumers are sort of curious about uh, when they get a bill, it says, you know, the cost is this, your insurance company paid this, and your balance is zero. And uh, it sometimes doesn't add up. Uh, does this clean up some of that? It does, and uh, I think that it will also help address uh, some of the the overlap in the federal surprise billing uh, legislation. Uh, you know, one of the big complaints that I'm hearing from patients and consumers across the state is uh, the lab uh, core or the lab expenses. They go in, get blood work done at the doctor's office, think that the insurance company is covering it, and then they end up getting a $50 bill for uh, a lab expenditure that they weren't anticipating. So Congress last year addressed the surprise billing legislation. I think this may give the consumers a little bit more power to question those bills and to get an explanation of assignment of how the cost of the care is being assigned by the insurance, by the physician, and then to the patient. Do you think this issue will be a big factor in Dale Falwell's campaign later on because he's an announced candidate for governor? I think his campaign on uh, having more transparency and more um, accountability when it comes to the cost of health care in the state of North Carolina is going to be a big plus mark for Dale. I, I saw a quote from him over the weekend that he says he does not attack people, he attacks problems. And clearly he has done that over his service as a state treasurer. 
And that's going to be his challenge is to communicate and to explain to Republican primary voters that I am out there fighting for you every single day. I've, ha- I've taken on the hospitals, holding them accountable. I've taken on Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, held them accountable. We've changed out our state health plan. And now we're getting legislation passed that's going to actually empower you to have more rights when it comes to medical bill and medical debt collection. Well, it's going to be uh, interesting. And of course, as you said, it passed its first obstacle uh, by getting endorsement from the state health care committee. And so that bill is is probably on its way. Our guest is Brad Crone. He's uh, with Campaign Connections, a frequent guest on our program, and we have more to go. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have some other topics that we will uh, get Brad's opinions and thoughts on, and we'll look forward to doing that. Let's take time out now for these messages. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step. But you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, a frequent guest on our program, Brad Crone. We always like to have Brad's opinions and thoughts because he brings great insight to a lot of issues. Uh, And uh, one of those that uh, has been a continuing problem in North Carolina for some time is the way we address mental health. Now, we're not the only state in the union that is having problems with this, but mental health is uh, certainly an issue that we have seemingly not been able to find a lot of great solutions so far. So what's going on in the General Assembly right now uh, about mental health reform, and, and what do you think about the proposal so far? Well, I will say this. uh, We have a big problem when it comes to our mental health care delivery system in the state of North Carolina. You see that when we've had a record number of fentanyl deaths in the state, overdose deaths last year. Just the past week, Don, there have been two students at North Carolina State University who have committed suicide. They've had 24 students at the university who have either died by suicide or by overdose, drug overdose with fentanyl. 
So we clearly see the safety network system that was restructured under Governor Easley all the way back in 2002, 2003. We've got some problems with it. It was groundbreaking um, policy when it was passed, but it's 20 years old and we've got to update it. So you've got some legislators like Donnie Lambeth from Winston-Salem, a former hospital administrator, Wayne Sasser, pharmacist from Stanley County, really taking the lead uh, in the state house on rewriting legislation. And, and the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem have said they're going to address it and they are putting their money where their mouth is. They've dedicated a billion dollars in this session to three key areas. There'd be $225 million allocated for behavioral health services access, making sure that there are more providers at the local level to be able to help people who are facing mental health, behavioral health, and addiction problems. $200 million on building out the statewide behavioral health system. So this means working with the state institutions that stretch from the mountains in, in Morganton and uh, Oxford and Butner and all the way down in Goldsboro at the Cherry Hospital facility and strengthening our statewide health system, working with our healthcare providers. For example, in Wake County, Wake Med has announced they're building a 150-bed facility that will be behavioral health focused in Garner. That should be online probably within 24 to 36 months. So the state is actively working with the healthcare providers, the hospitals in particular, on looking at additional beds that would be available for inpatient, in-facility in patient care. And then there'd be $50 million dedicated for telehealth programs and having a centralized bed registry uh, so that there can be a ongoing network for, per, for healthcare physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, nurse practitioners to know where uh, patients could have in-care facility care provided. So it, it, it is a billion dollar overhaul of our state mental health care system. It is due, it is needed. And uh, the legislative leadership and their members who specialize on the health committees are really taking action. So it will be a one-time you know, infusion of cash. And then I think they'll come back and look at the progress that they're making and try and determine if there will be any other uh, sources of revenue and funding that will be necessary as they move forward. This is uh, will be an ongoing issue that the, the state Senate and state health, uh, state house health committees will be working on for the next several years. One other interesting element, the attorney general has uh, sent millions of dollars into local mental health uh, county units on the uh, settlement agreement with the makers of opioids. And so those monies are going into counties like Pasquotank County, down into Macon and Clay County to help local hospitals, to help local mental health county departments, and to help local providers have treatment programs for those who may be addicted to opioids and to help the patient, but also support the family. 
So the uptake, here's the uptake on the mental health reform. They are making progress. They have a clear-cut plan that is going to build up the state's mental health delivery network and the safety net that is out there for our citizens. So it's 20 years in the making, but it, it, it will be real progress, and it will truly have an impact on the people and the families who need it the most. Well, it seems like this is the biggest commitment that I've seen in my time to solving this problem, which has been a reoccurring problem in North Carolina. This is pretty much bipartisan also. Is that not correct? It is bipartisan, and you're correct. It is probably the biggest uh, infusion of money into our mental health care delivery system since 1949 when Governor Greg Cherry from Gastonia laid out uh, a statewide network building uh, Broughton Hospital, expanding Dorothea Dix Hospital, and then they opened a hospital in Goldsboro, which is named for the governor, uh, the Cherry Center down there. And Greg Cherry, that was probably the cornerstone of his administration, was really taking on um, the construction of a healthcare delivery system that focused on behavioral and mental health. And then you remember in 1964, Dan K. Moore's wife, um, who suffered with alcoholism, uh, really made an effort to make sure that we addressed addiction and from alcohol as well as uh, prescription drugs and, and illegal drugs. So those have historically have been the major efforts put forward. And in, 19, in 2003, Harmon Hooker, uh, Odom was the Secretary of Health and Human Services under Governor Mike Easley, really led the the restructuring of the local medical entities, the LMEs, which set up a network across the state to provide managed care for behavioral health in the state. And that has been effective, but the state has grown. The demand for uh, mental health and behavioral health care services has grown and we clearly need an update and and some improvements. And this is a very big step in that direction. Moving on to another topic, the credit unions versus the NC Bank legislative debate. Uh, I think there's a House bill what uh, called 412 that uh, addresses some of this. Bring us up to date on what that uh, involves. Well, it, it was an interesting fight, probably still is an interesting fight going over to uh, the out of the state banking committee over to the Senate banking committee. And it's just a dust up. It, it's, you know, who would ever think that the bankers and the credit union uh, suit and tie folks would get in such a dust up over the definition of, of a customer and what a customer base means. And uh, Julia Howard masterfully, uh, you know, you can't, you got to really appreciate her understanding of the legislative process. She's a long-term, probably 30-year legislator from Davie County, from Oxville, and just masterful when it comes to the legislative process. And she's one of the few people in the General Assembly who can look at a broad issue like this and really narrow it down work diligently to try and get the two sides together and then uh, get legislation moved uh, from the House committee down to the House floor. So um, I think both uh, sides 
aren't happy with it. So that tells me that it's probably a good piece of legislation uh, <laughs> for for the people of North Carolina. Now we've got to follow where it goes in the state Senate. That one well, of, when you say a definition of what a, a, a customer is, explain that a little bit. Well, the legislation defined uh, who the credit unions could open accounts with. And uh, the it, it was known as the field of membership. So it defines who would qualify as a potential member of a credit union in the state of North Carolina, whether it's the state employees credit union, the Navy credit union, any of the credit unions doing business in the state of North Carolina. And the tension has been that the banks have to take all comers and that the credit unions can cherry pick the, the best customers in the banking environment. And uh, they, the bankers wanted a more level playing field when it comes to definition of their field of membership. So it also, there's some tension about uh, the access to banking, whether it's credit unions or actual uh, state banks in rural regions of the state. And that, you know, many of the larger national banks and even some of the regional and local banks have closed branches in um, low population, low wealth areas. And so there's been some concern about that. And and Julia Howard was working uh, on what is known as a a banking uh, desert uh, issue, trying to, to provide language in the legislation that will encourage uh financial institutions not to leave uh, economically challenged areas. You also uh, sent me a note that the Eastern Band of the Cherokees are looking at legalizing cannabis on their on their boundary. Yes, the the uh, big news coming out of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Nation this week, they have allocated almost sixty three sixty four million dollars in uh, nation Cherokee Nation funding to look at a cannabis enterprise. And of course, the, the Eastern Band of the Cherokees are, are sovereign land uh, across several counties in Western North Carolina, uh, primarily Jackson uh, County and um, I believe Haywood County. Uh, then they ha- I believe they also have some land probably in Macon and Clay. Uh, but they want to look at at what would legalizing cannabis uh, would look like, and how would you how would you go through the process of doing that? And the reservation that the Indians could not use uh, capital, venture capital, so they're using actual money from the Eastern Band of the Cherokees. So they've been talking about various forms of legalized cannabis. Uh, probably since 2015, and the Tribal Council is, is really saying, we want to look at this. This is an issue that our nation is interested in, our constituents interested in, and I think um, you're going to see movement on that front for sure as um, the Cherokee Nation, Eastern Band of the Cherokees, look at uh, providing legal cannabis within the koala boundary. That will raise an interesting question on the uh, rights of the state 
But, uh, you know, in the past, what I've seen is that state of North Carolina and the federal government have been respectful of the sovereign boundaries of the eastern band of the Cherokee. So they, the uh, you know, with legalized casino and gaming, they were the first in the state. They may be the first in the state to actually uh, put together a business plan that would regulate but also open up and legalize marijuana in the state of North Carolina. So uh, they're putting the money, again, the theme of the show is putting your money where your mouth is, and and they're doing it in this situation. So it'll be an interesting story to watch over the next several weeks, months, and years. Well, uh, thank you very much for that update on that. And uh, in the next segment, our last segment, we're going to talk about the fact that Politics is in the air. We're a year away now from primaries, and we will talk about that in the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, Brad Crone. First, we're going to take a break for these messages, and we'll be right back thereafter. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it, unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest, a uh, very good program so far, has been Brad Crone. So you've got... Uh, one final segment to hold up the standard of the first three segments, which were very good, Brad. You did a That's good tough. job. <laughs> so we'll see if you can be good for uh, for approximately 12 more minutes. But uh, the political season, I guess, is underway. We have uh, two announced candidates for uh, the Republican nomination. And, of course, uh, the Democratic nomination uh, is probably already pretty much conceded, uh, at least right now, uh, to Attorney General to the attorney general who is off and running probably also. But let's talk about, uh, first of all, the uh, the two candidates for the Republican nomination. Both have announced Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson and, of course, uh, Dale Falwell, our current treasurer. So uh, Dale Falwell, and it, it's going to be an interesting match because the biggest challenge, Dale Falwell on paper is the better candidate. But that doesn't always necessarily translate in politics when it comes to primary voters. 
And the big challenges that Dale Falwell will face in the Republican primary is money and organization. There is no doubt that the lieutenant governor has built a widespread following within the uh, what I would call your super conservative right wing of the Republican Party, uh, the Trump faction, you can call it that, and that he is he has a well-established base within the Republican Party, and that enables him to uh, tap into money, not only here in North Carolina, but in money across the nation. The lieutenant governor has been very, very smart and strategic in getting out to meet with groups, CPAC, the NRA, and building his uh, alliances with those conservative organizations that can provide small do dollar donors as well as very large wells when it comes to uh, providing independent expenditure and large dollar contributions into your campaign. And so the big hurdles that the state treasurer, who has a very good pedigree, a great record of public service and accomplishments as state treasurer, his biggest challenge will be raising the money, $3 million, $4 million in the primary, and then building out an organization that can compete. He has that potential, and, and that potential is the uh, moderate Main Street wing of the Republican Party. I, I, I contend about 30% are Trumpers, 30% is your Chamber of Commerce crowd, and 30% are fence-sitters. So. Dale Falwell has got to get the, the Main Street Chamber of Commerce wing of the party engaged and willing to invest in his campaign if he's going to be successful in that process. The lieutenant governor announced last weekend it really worked to define the race. And, and it was interesting to see the pictures that the lieutenant governor painted in portraying himself as a working person who has held factory jobs, who have worked as a restaurant manager, who's worked in a Dollar General and has been bankrupt. He knows the struggles that everyday working people in the state of North Carolina have made. And he made that contrast against the sitting attorney general painting Josh Stein as a, an elite, someone who studied at Ivy League schools, who's never understood uh, what it means to work on a factory floor, has never met a payroll, and uh, has never seen a problem he couldn't solve without a tax increase. So uh, Robinson was very elegant in laying out the picture of the race between you know, his, what he sees as his position and what he sees as uh, potentially the Democrat nominee's position, Josh Stein. Interesting enough, Stein tweeted out and then sent some emails out say, <laughs> saying um, that Mark Robinson was too extreme for the state of North Carolina, that his hate speech, in particular when it comes to the LGBT community, is not acceptable. And that hate speech and the, the extreme conservative positions that he's taking on, on abortion issues and reproductive right issues in the state of North Carolina are out of step with the majority of our citizens. 
and could have an economic impact and hurt our business climate in the state, very similar to what we saw with House Bill 2 back in 2016 and 2017. So the stage is set. The big question, Don, is going to be, will Attorney General Josh Stein end up with a primary? And it's possible there are a couple of names out, some speculation that the uh, Mike Morgan, a Supreme Court justice, uh, would look at getting into the race. His name has been uh, mentioned. There are a couple others that are very, very preliminary. But will there be a Democratic primary to help strengthen that field? Um, if we end up with a Mark Robinson, Josh Stein race, uh, both candidates have very strong basis of support. Early polling conducted by public policy polling has shown the lieutenant governor in a head-to-head matchup against the attorney general with a slight lead right now. But it will be a very polarizing race for the state of North Carolina. Could be historic in the sense that we would elect our first African-American governor, or we could elect our first Jewish governor if Josh Stein and Mark Robinson are the respected candidates. So another interesting thing that, that I think will be intriguing to watch in the campaign Will what will the campaigns do to track back and to recruit and and activate your centrist middle of the road, your purple voters, as you said at the top of the show? And will they will they lay out a vision for the state of North Carolina? You know, Don, looking at the history of our state, truly great governors in our state have been builders. They've made major investment in the infrastructure of our state that has helped build a social and business fabric that have have has led to the success of our state. John Motley Moorhead in the early 1840s laid out the state's infrastructure system by building railroads from Raleigh to, to Gastonia, from Raleigh to Gaston up in Northampton County, from Raleigh to Wilmington and Raleigh to Moorhead City. And that that infrastructure investment in the early 1840s remains intact today pretty much by a surface road system. Cameron Morrison in 1921 was the governor who took over, took, made the state take over all the roads. At that point in time, all roads were maintained by the counties. Several states, for example, Commonwealth of Virginia, Today, it maintains their state system and the county's responsible for it. So in, in 1921, Cameron Morrison, governor from Charlotte, took over the state road system. In 1949, Carr Scott had the market uh, farms to market program that really invested money in building out our rural uh, secondary road system across the state. Luther Hodges, former governor, built RTP. And then Jim Martin in 1985 to, to 1993 worked to build a four-lane road system within 10 miles of every single resident in the state. So my point is truly great governors build things. I want to see the vision from Josh Stein. I want to see the vision from Mark Robinson. What are you going to build for the state of North Carolina? We've not had a governor, a great governor, building things 
literally since Jim Martin was the governor in 1984. So great governors build infrastructure that lead to economic growth and success of the state. Let's see the vision from the nominees, the, the leading candidates, from Dale Falwell, from Mark Robinson, and from Josh Stein, and any other candidates get in. Tell us your vision for the state of North Carolina. I believe that's going to be paramount. We're probably going to have a turnover. Well, we certainly will have a turnover in the Council of State position because Dale Falwell will be running for governor. What uh, other positions on the Council of State uh, might be up for this uh, this next well, election? You have two leading candidates coming out of the legislature looking at running for state treasurer. Wes Harris, a, an economist from Southern Mecklenburg County, a Democrat, uh, has already announced his campaign. John Bradford, who is chairman of the health committee in the state house from northern Mecklenburg, from Cornelius and Huntersville, an insurance agent, has announced he's going to be running. So there are two very well qualified candidates right now running for state treasurer. There's also reports that the uh, position for state ag commissioner will be open, that uh, Steve Troxler has seriously considered um, retirement. There's also reports out that Troxler's made phone calls across the state, really looking at the possibility of running for governor. And I don't know how far that has gotten, but it, it signals to me that that Troxler uh, may feel like he's done all he can do in ag agriculture, but he's not ready to hang up the cleats at this point in time. So that could be an open position as well. Another interesting position to watch is what is going to happen in the state auditor's position. Will the incumbent state auditor look at running for re-election again following the fiasco she faced uh, last December and has gone through the judicial process in the first quarter in the month of March, uh, Beth Wood facing uh, misdemeanor criminal charges for uh, hit and run accident and failing to report the accident. And that has been dramatic to her. Can she overcome that? Will she over elect to overcome that in an attempt to seek reelection? So that could be an open seat for sure. Um, It'll be interesting, I think, uh, to look at the insurance commissioner, David Wheeler, a, a Democrat from Spruce Pine, who has been running independent expenditures, primarily going after uh, Republicans up in the 13th, old 13th district, uh, 11th district, uh, with the congressman up there and uh, active in, in the primary, GOP primary, going after Madison Cawthorn. So he he knows how to raise money, and he is attacking Mike Causey, the Republican uh, Commissioner of Insurance. Causey has signaled that he is definitely going to run for re-election. So that seat for insurance committee, uh, insurance commissioners could certainly be competitive. Brad, our time is running out. This is great uh, and a great insight into what, what we might be looking forward to for the next year. A reminder that if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the entire broadcast. And, of course, we will look forward to our producer having another interesting guest next week. So till next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.